3: Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Anne Dowsett Johnston, author of Drink, the Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol. Uh, Her new book was named one of Washington Post's Best Books of 2013, Drink Takes Aim at an Alarming Epidemic, and it is a very alarming epidemic, the worrisome rise in binge drinking and alcohol abuse among girls and women. She brings to light the statistical evidence and reveals how dangerous levels of female drinking is on the upswing uh, precipitated in part by an unmitigated push by the alcohol industry to woo women drinkers from an early age. Um, Anne Dowsett-Johnston is the winner of five National Magazine Awards and has been interviewed on many television programs, CTV, Global TV, and is published in the New York Post, and a former vice president of McGill University. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Anne. Great to be here. Thank you. Well, these are startling statistics. It is an alarming epidemic. Um, As you and I just talked briefly about before the show began, a lot of these statistics weren't available to us. Um, It's only been over the past 10 years, I guess, so that we've had this information that the binge drinking and alcohol abuse among girls and women is on the rise, I guess, as well. It continues. Yes. we. You know, let's take a very simple statistic
4: that somewhere between 10 and 15% of breast cancer cases are related to alcohol uh, consumption, and we didn't know that five years ago. So this is something that each and every woman needs to be aware of, needs to know that there are, say, unlike with cigarettes or tobacco, there's safe drinking levels, and you just have to be very cognizant of what your habits are and make sure that they stay within safe, um, the safe realm.
3: Well, you say excessive drinking is the third leading cause of preventable death in the United States.
4: Yes, uh, it, that is that is a fact. And we have seen a very interesting statistic where men are actually flatlining or even dipping in their um, binge drinking, but that isn't the case with women. And there is, as you said, a very huge push on the part of the alcohol industry, which very smartly realized sometime in the mid-1990s that indeed... There was a whole gender that was underperforming. Classically, women drink less than men and still do. But we see an alarming rise, especially around professional, educated women, those who have gone to university, and a really big spike around those between the ages of 24 and 36 who give birth to 60% of North American babies.
3: Well, are these women? Why, why do you think the? I, I guess the first question is why this trend. I mean, now we have these statistics. Is this because more women are in business? They're professional. They they are subject to the same stresses that same men used to be. I mean, one of the causes of drinking, or the excuses for drinking too much, or drinking on the job, or. Uh, drinking, uh, you know, business meetings, those kinds of things. Is that one of the reasons? Although we're talking about young women here, too, not just necessarily professional women. We're talking about both. Right. You say, yeah, binge drinking in, right. in college. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I think I think the, the central reason um, I wrote this book was to ask the why. And we can all say the what, but, you know, why, why is this happening? And I saw three reasons. Number one, I think it's the modern woman's steroid enabling her to do the heavy lifting involved in complex worlds. So you come home from a big day at the office, you're chopping vegetables, you're getting ready to oversee homework, second shift, and you pour yourself a glass of wine, and one glass of wine is fine, if it if it stays at that, but it doesn't often stay at that. So it's a decompression tool. Number one, number two, self-medication. So women are forty percent more likely to suffer from depression, anxiety than men, and it's um, a legal, easily accessible drug, and there's no doubt that there is a connection between um those issues number 3 we drink because we can we drink because we're marketed to so you have wines like mummy juice berry flavored vodka um all sorts of products that as we know certainly the alcopops those um sweet uh, pre-packaged um, drinks that are aimed at teenagers. I call them cocktails with training wheels or starter drinks that are there to push young women away from starting uh, early drinkers away from beer into alcohol. So you go to a campus, say, in the States right now, and you find that young women and young men are playing drinking games. He's drinking beer. She's drinking shots, tequila or vodka. You know, she's two-thirds of the size, and she's drinking the stronger beverage, which is not great. Um, we all know that alcohol is the number one date rape drug. So it's not, it's not a pretty picture, and it is what is evolving. So we see a whole industry that has, uh, as I say in the book, you know, the pinking of the market. The pinking of the market is very real. Walk into any outlet, and you'll
3: see it. You know, as you're uh, describing it to me, I'm thinking, Anne, though, one of the things um, that I want to address is the fact that, well, at least, and I'm not exactly sure when it was not allowed, but they used to advertise alcohol on television here in the space. I know you're in Canada. Now they're not allowed to do that. There isn't mm-hmm. advertising on TV, so there's less advertising. I want you to address that.
4: Yeah. And two,
3: I mean, this is kind of anecdotal, but I'm thinking of myself in college many years ago. We drank a lot. I mean, we sat there with six-packs drinking, you know, the kind of drinking that you're describing that young girls do, and I, I think go, here's a statistic that's in your book. Almost 14 million American girls and women, many who are even still in high school, binge drink roughly three times each month, typically consuming six drinks each time. I would say that was... An average statistic, maybe not in (laughs) high school, but in college when I was in college. We
4: all tend to say we did it, we did it true. There's a couple of things I want to address. Number one, um, this kind of advertising um, the advertising that the marketing that is pitched at young drinkers is not happening on television, it's happening on the internet. Um, It's called poll marketing. You are not sitting on your couch watching uh, your favorite television show. This generation doesn't watch TV like this. They go to their computers, and they search out Bacardi or Smirnoff, and there is poll marketing means they go to the site. They want to join in the community that is related to that brand. And before you know it, that brand is communicating to them like... An individual, like a person, um, emailing them, Facebook friending them, um, tweeting, and we all know how cheap it is to tweet. So that's that's a, the very um, modern face of alcohol marketing, and it's very real and, and pitched at that generation. Number one, number two, um, this generation doesn't tend to drink and drive the same way that we did. Um, my generation did, but they pre-drink. They pre-drink because it's too expensive to drink at the bar and so they have um, speak to any parent and you will hear about pre-drinking. You drink before the party, get smashed before you go out because it's a lot cheaper than drinking at the bar. So they have typically a lot of alcohol around them at in their university dorms. They have a lot of um, I call it um, efficient drinking. Drinking to um, get get drunk. We drank a lot of when I went to university. Drank a lot of beer. Um, this is drinking a lot a lot of hard liquor. We did not do that. This is a completely different picture. Maybe maybe you did. It it is just um, a very curious spike that's happening. And what's interesting is this cohort is not slowing down. They're not slowing down after they graduate from university. That was the classic picture. Is that. You know, it was seen as a quote unquote harmless rite of passage, which it isn't for everybody, and then slow down. Well, this generation is not slowing down
3: when they move on to professional life. Well, I think with women and and uh, and I think you're describing it. Yes, it was a rite of passage. You drank a lot in college, then you had your babies and you kind of stopped or you right. didn't obviously drink the same way you did. But now, I think there's a social aspect to this and maybe you address this in the book, but women have a lot more opportunities to go to bars by themselves with other women. You know, the social structure has changed so they can they have access to that environment. Maybe 30 years ago women didn't go to bars alone. They went with a a, par, a man or a date. But that's not true now. So they, I think that changes kind of the the, the uh, social uh, realm as well. Yeah, I think
4: you're right. I think that there is a real sense of um, I can do everything. There's also uh, I can do everything that a man does. Therefore, I will unwind with a drink at the end of the day. There's, you know, you can't place it all at the feet of Sarah Jessica Parker and and the the women from sex in the city. But if you look at, and there have been studies looking at, you know, the most popular television shows and the rise of um, images of women and drinking, or you've got Kathy Lee sitting there at 10 in the morning with her glass of wine on television. This is a much more common equal opportunity, I drink because I can I call it um, Virginia Slims in a bottle, which is not my phrase picked up from somebody else, but it's a it's a good phrase. It's exactly what happened with Virginia Slims and Tobacco, which is an aiming at this gender and a very clear um uptick. I mean, talk about book clubs, talk about girls weekends, talk about You know, it is understood. Talk about the two-martini play date. Um, It is seen as, or or the wine at the baby shower. Um, The culture is, we live in an alkagenic culture, and we are, I
3: think, awash in marketing and to the degree that we almost don't see it. Bachelorette parties—I think you can add to that. Now all these young women who are getting married uh, have the same kind of or a similar kind of party. Men used to have these bachelor parties before the, they got married, and That's now right. I see all the young—they go away for a weekend of mm-hmm. fun, drinking, doing whatever they do before they get married. That's right. another trend.
4: Right. That's a huge trend. And and my son's twenty-nine, and a lot of his friends are in fact. Um, you know, involved the the young women are doing exactly what you're saying. i um, having, having weekends, and now over in the UK, where young women are dying of end stage liver disease in their twenties, where alcohol is often in grocery stores cheaper than um, water or milk or orange juice. So really low pricing. Um, we we see young women taking uh, weekend trips up to Scotland, where they are. You know, doing basically alcohol tourism, where they're going for the weekend and and getting completely blind drunk, and um, it's it's something that many people are
3: commenting on. The so fact that, and I guess maybe we should define it. This is not just obviously in the United States. We're talking about a global problem with this age group. Um, what's you mentioned drunkorexia? What is that? Drunkorexia
4: is on the rise, and it's a mixture of. Um, uh, food um, issues, um, so anorexia, bulimia, um, food disorders, eating disorders, excuse me, and um, drinking too much. So you save all your calories for alcohol, and it's an extremely dangerous um, practice. It's extremely dangerous if you are an anorexic. If you are saving all your calories for alcohol and are not ingesting, obviously, um, food, You know, it can be deadly, and it is on the rise. And classically, young women that I interview say, no, no, I would never eat before a date. I I don't want to look fat. So drinking on an empty stomach, drinking vodka and tequila on an empty stomach, and we know from some of the very high-profile cases that have happened in in, uh, recent years, Certainly, a very um, high-profile one out of California, big one out of Canada, where young women are end up being sexually compromised in Facebook pictures and then taking their own lives. So, there are many, many alarming trends that are coming out of
3: um, this reality of women drinking, uh, quote unquote, efficiently. And the the difference between men and women in terms of the impact. Of alcohol on their system let's talk about that I mean because it is different women's bodies metabolize the alcohol Mm -hmm. differently and so can can we have a little bit of a discussion about that because I think that's important
4: Yeah, that's huge. I mean, democratically we're equal, but metabolically and hormonally, we really aren't when it comes to alcohol, and we don't metabolize the same way. Um, Telescoping is real, and telescoping means we become addicted much faster than men. Um, We develop end-stage liver disease much, much faster. We develop cognitive deficits much faster. It is a deadlier drug for us, and it isn't just a matter of body size. It's also, just as you said, how we metabolize um, the product, and it's something I think that you know we did end up having a mature conversation, public conversation about alcohol. I don't, or excuse me, about tobacco, but we haven't about alcohol, and I think it's because it's how we relax and reward. We associate it with fun events, New Year's, and and parties, and weddings, et cetera, and we don't um, want to hear about the downside, but it is a matter of just simple education. I think, you know, if you can count your drinks and keep it to nine a week, uh, if you're female, then you're just fine. And if you if you can manage that, terrific, but count them. I mean, count them out. And, um, you know, there there is an awful lot of attention, as I said. Um, Skinny Girl Vodka, Skinny Girl Products, um, pitching at women—be um, alert, be alert—and that's what I say to young women in high school. Just know that you are in the in the you know target of the marketers, and just be aware.
3: So you have to be and know that you are at risk, and. Um, you know, one of the, I guess you may call this jargon, but mindful drinking, you know, we do mindful eating or we try to, uh, or, you know, as, and I think as you keep mentioning, you know, women are always watching their calories. We have to really be mindful of what we drink and, and watch, what did you say, nine drinks a week and and you're probably in pretty good shape. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But there's a lot of denial associated with drinking. There always has been, I Mm -hmm. think, and uh, whether one is a full-blown alcoholic or, or a problem drinker, or however you want to define it i mean that 's been my experience uh, as a social worker working in a in a, in a in a clinic actually um, for uh, men and women who are addicted to alcohol but this this whole issue of denial how do we overcome that and and, and things get so stressful as you say, and the alcohol is available and it is there uh, both in your own home and at a bar and, and wherever you go actually so um I guess we've. I want to make sure that we've covered the statistics in terms of how important it is for us to at least become aware of the problem, um, and and one statistic that we didn't mention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you say it's a conservative estimate in your book um, that alcohol or drink is responsible for roughly twenty three thousand deaths of American girls and women each year. So, if we accept that statistic, we do have a problem. So now getting back to my question, what do we do about it? I think what we, we do about it
4: is we start to educate. And when I say nine drinks a week, that means never more than two drinks on one occasion. So don't save up that nine for the weekend and say you're fine. You are not fine. For a woman, it's never t- more than two drinks on any one occasion, which to a lot of people, I mean, what is a binge? Binge is four drinks in two hours and for a woman and five for a man just know your numbers know when you're going to be in trouble know that you know i think these the, this deserves a public conversation and certainly a public conversation with young people to be aware of of how much they're being targeted what we what we need to do and be a very alert to and i mentioned it about the uk it's but also um the alert in terms of the united states is the fact that um, it isn't the alcoholic that you have to be concerned with necessarily. Um, we all know someone who's gotten into trouble with alcohol. I certainly did in my fifties, self-medicating, depression. But you, um, more than eighty percent of us drink socially over the age of fifteen, and the, it's it's the um, binge drinking of the non-alcoholic, the non-addicted that is. Problematic. the person who gets into trouble. It's the fact that we do live in an alchogenic culture. Alcohol in the United States is extremely cheap. It is available in many states, in the gas stations, available everywhere. And it is enormously cheap, enormously um, low-priced. And uh, price is related, and marketing is related to how we consume. And we have to be aware of what... That some of the best um, uh, research on on policy is coming out of the United States. A man like David Jernigan at the at uh, Johns Hopkins University doing amazing work on marketing and marketing to youth. And you are, as we are in Canada, very, very um, highly educated in terms of what the levers are in terms of changing public behavior. And. Too much marketing, too much marketing on the internet, low price of product, too much availability of the product, all this
3: changes how we behave as a society.
4: And I I have to say,
3: I am, until obviously uh, reading your book, but I've been very naive about the marketing, I guess, because uh, on the internet, uh, and the way it's done, as you uh-huh. mentioned earlier in the show, marketing on the Internet, marketing drinking, marketing alcohol to this younger population, because mm-hmm. that's, that, that's a, I mean, obviously, that's a huge audience, uh, a huge market, obviously, for the business But also seniors, and you mentioned you self-medicated in your 50s Mm -hmm. as a result of depression, and I think that, too, is becoming more common, particularly among women. It's a huge problem in assisted living facilities and even nursing homes where seniors are self-medicating.
4: You're right, and we deal with the issues of of the prevalence of falls, and often it's associated with alcohol with seniors. Um, Certainly loneliness, self-medicating loneliness, that's very common with elderly men and women. And it's something that we have to have an open adult conversation about. I um, this is your, your right to cite it. I notice that in almost every situation where I'm doing um, a public talk, people are very interested in focusing on the drinking habits of youth, but rarely interested in talking about their own drinking habits or those of older people. And this is something right now that is... Of concern, right through our culture, of you know, in terms of all ages and
3: aging, the aging population is not immune. What's been the response? When I mean, you're you're in the public, you're out there, as you say, educating people is obviously one your mission or your goal. So, when you do that in public forums, what kind of a response do you get? What are you getting from either educators, teachers, the kids themselves, or even the seniors?
4: the kids themselves are fascinating they say we should be educated about this in grade 4 or 5 they they say you know we're told about sex we're told about drugs we should be told about these issues especially the marketing piece they're fascinated by it they want to know earlier they really do want to know earlier and You know, I spoke to a classroom recently and said how many of you are dealing at home with someone who is drinking too much and almost the whole class put up their hand. So they're not naive. We live in a culture where a lot of people drink, and how your parents drink influences how you will drink. So. This is something um, where, as I said, that often people want to talk about youth drinking and they, marked by denial, do not want to talk about their own, do not want to talk about the, those of older people. But this is a cultural issue. Um, so there's huge appetite to talk about it. There's been the book's a bestseller in Canada and a very um, available internationally. And it tells the story of... Multiple women, from the ages of 16 up to 85 that will be my mother um, who have had alcohol issues, um, but it talks about the global um, problem as well. And frankly, the richer the country, the narrower the gap between men and women. Something is unfolding that even epidemiologists are scratching their head about. We are drinking at a
3: different level, and it's fascinating. I think one of the things we have to be aware of at least in my experience is not getting into the all or nothing thing. I know at least in, and I'll speak I think in 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 the United States, uh you know the, the we we've listed these, you know, alarming statistics and then you get people on the bandwagon, well nobody should be drinking and you have to treat you know have to teach abstinence which really doesn't get us anywhere and I don't think that's obviously what you're saying we need to you know you we need to understand what responsible drinking is and I think I want to make that clear because I think when you get into the all or nothing then you really don't get too far especially with young people even not necessarily just with young people but even with that gamut of 16 to
4: 85. I'm so glad you said that I'm I am certainly no prohibitionist. I crossed a line with my own drinking in my 50s where I would not go back. But for most people, I think it's a wonderful substance to be enjoyed and used properly. And just, you know, we know all about the dangers of tanning beds and trans fats. And we just haven't had a proper education, public conversation about this. It's very, very simple. It's very, very simple. It's connected to all sorts of things that are difficult. We just have to talk properly about it and be well-educated about it. But it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful substance and a wonderful substance to be celebrated. And if you can, if you can celebrate um, responsibly, perfect.
3: What about you? We have only a few minutes left, um, but just, you know, you talk about you crossed the line. Can you give us some insight into what made you... that you had crossed the line and and obviously were able to to take control of your drinking.
4: Yeah, a a cousin of mine was killed by a drunk driver and my mother had been a severe alcoholic and I looked up after Dougie died and said, I have to um, stop drinking. I lost my childhood to drinking alcohol. I lost my cousin Doug and I have to stop myself and I found I couldn't. And... I um I took a sledgehammer. I went to the United States for uh treatment and quit drinking and haven't had a drink for more than 5 years and it's it's tough. New sobriety is not for the faint of heart, but it is worth it and I have a very um a very happy life now and wouldn't risk drinking again. And I guess my my biggest message is if you haven't crossed that line, don't cross it. It is it is not worth going there but i also realized in the writing of the book that i am indeed the poster girl for you know professional high bottom high, highly educated um, and much as my mother was a sort of betty ford mixing valium with cocktails stay at home mom i am i am the face of the new alcoholic and she is female
3: and well you're certainly the person the spokesperson the appropriate the spokesperson for uh for for, uh, actually educating the public and uh, through your book and obviously through all the other work that you do. I mean, I I can identify with with you in terms of smoking. I was a very heavy smoker in my 20s. -hmm. And then at 30, when I got pregnant, I stopped smoking, and I haven't had another cigarette since. But if I did, I think it's very similar to your alcohol situation. I, I mean, I liked it. I'm not one of those people who can't stand the smell of smoke, so I would never you know, take another cigarette again, Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, so it's not easy, probably easier not to smoke because not as many people are smoking, but alcohol is associated with so, you know, as you mentioned, with, you know, most social events, if not all, are associated with some kind of drinking, a glass of wine, you know, whatever, Yes, it's a very tough sub, a tough
4: substance to give up in our culture and walk into any party and
3: you will be asked red or white before you're almost asked anything else. So do people try to force you. I notice that. I'm always looking uh, when someone says, no, I don't want to drink. Uh, very often, you know, you'll hear the host or the hostess say, well, just have a glass of wine or, you know, trying to force it on you. And if so, what do you do? Yeah, you you always have a drink
4: in your hand. You you walk in, get yourself a whatever it is you drink, other than other than alcohol, and you have a drink in your hand, and and you just start firm. But but it is the truth. People will try and force you to have a drink, and and it's usually those that have a problem with drinking themselves. Most people actually couldn't care less whether you drink or or you or you don't. But there is always someone that will be asking you um, why you don't. And. You know, the most common question I get is, I drink too much, I'm an alcoholic, and my answer is always, get up in the morning and make a vow as to what you're doing that day. If you can keep your promise, you know, for a week, for a month, then you probably aren't. An alcoholic cannot control um, their behavior, and it's, um, it's somewhere you don't want to go, believe me, so, yep. you know, I think safe behavior is, is wise.
3: Well, where we do want people to go is to read your book, and we have to say goodbye. And the name of the book, again, is Drink, The Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol, and Dowsett Johnston. Thanks so much for being on the show. You were really very enlightening. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, great to have you. Uh, We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute.
2: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
3: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN.
2: You're listening to The Catherine Zoc Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788
3: back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me, my second guest, is Jonathan Fast, author of Beyond Bullying, Breaking the Cycle of Shame, Bullying, and Violence. Uh, Dr. Fast is a clinician, researcher, and author of 11 books. Uh, he He is a graduate of Princeton University, Columbia University, and Yeshiva University. He's been a therapist, a school social worker at an urban high school, and the clinical director of a children's psychiatric day hospital, and currently is professor of social work at Yeshiva University. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Nice to have you on this morning.
1: Thank you, Catherine. It's nice to be here.
3: So we're going to be talking about your new book, Beyond Bullying, Breaking the Cycle of Shame, Bullying and Violence. And apparently, as I understand it, your book is the first book to integrate shame research into a single overarching theory of bullying.
1: I think Uh, it is.
3: Yeah. So you're the first. Okay. So what are we talking about? Um, Well, we're talking about breaking the cycle of shame bullying and violence, uh, which, you know, the title of the book, Beyond Bullying, what are we doing? How do we do it?
1: Well, the, the first thing is, why, why are we doing it? And the premise is that shame is at the basis of many of the worst things that uh, that social workers like ourselves and mm-hmm. therapists uh, deal with our, with our clients, um, and I'm talking about low self-esteem, violence, blaming, bad behavior, bullying, I think all these things are ways of mismanaged shame. They're ways that people are trying to manage their shame and they're not good ways of doing it. A couple of uh, very important people, including um, the cognitive behavioral therapist whose name I just can't seem to remember right now, have all agreed that shame is the master emotion, that shame is the principal emotion. And because America is an extremely aggressive and competitive country, um, we don't talk about shame because shame we associate very much with failure. Um,
3: Dr. So Pass, as a result, is, Jonathan, I just want to yeah. interrupt. Is shame ever a good thing? I mean, when we talk about, let's say, uh, child rearing, uh, mm-hmm. I was, and I have, besides being a social worker, a mother of three boys, and I was always taught that shame was not a good thing, even if you're ashamed, you know, whether it had to do with maybe some b- small bit of behavior that, they say, your child was doing that wasn't a good thing to do, but you never shame them, that, that shame is never a good way of, of, tr- of treating children or of trying to get them to behave.
1: Okay, so uh, uh, some authorities, like John Bradshaw, for example, And Tom Sheff and some others believe that there is healthy shame and toxic shame. And that healthy shame is the basis of a lot of the way we educate children. So, for example, if you've got a little guy who's two or three and he's in his high chair um, and he's finger painting with his tomato soup, you want to say things like, You can't sit at the grown up table until you stop, you know, until you can learn to eat with a fork. and that is a form of shame, because what you're doing is you're saying you can't join this more elite group until you change your behavior. And the reason why I say that's a form of shame is because if you really want to understand shame, think of it in terms of groups. So everyone is involved in a group. It's one of our greatest longings, is to be part of groups. And as soon as you feel like, uh, like your membership in a group is uh, at risk, or that you failed to, to gain access to a group of higher status, you experience shame. So once we can get that idea in our heads, we can kind of detoxify shame, and we can see that it's not the worst thing in the world to have this feeling. And also we can understand how to deal with it better. So, yeah, I think the there is healthy shame. What's the difference between
3: shame and embarrassment? I mean, I always, maybe I'm just sort of like... Um, I just want—I don't know—maybe overstepping the point, but like, it's what, what you know. You may embarrass your child, or you shame. Uh, maybe it's just a me- you know a semantics that I'm talking about.
1: Cognates, cognates. So, if you read any of the literature on this, you'll see that one of the problems with dealing with shame and with any emotion is that there are so many cognates for the word. I mean, our language is filled with them because we don't want to use the word shame. Shame is really a taboo word and a taboo subject. So we say embarrassed, we say awkward, we say disrespected. Uh, We have a whole vocabulary for mortified, Um, but we don't want to use the word shame.
3: Okay. All right. Well, now we are using the word shame and we're making the distinction between positive or Healthy, healthy shame and that toxic shame that's not. Okay, now example of what is not healthy, what is not a good kind of shame.
1: Toxic shame. Toxic shame is when you say to your kid, you can't sit at the adult table because you're an animal. I see from the way you eat that you're, you're a beast, you're not human. <laughs> so just the way you say it, you know. If you, if you say it in a way that's... Um, that doesn't uh, hack away at their sense of their self, then that's a positive shame. But if you you know if you demean a person, um, that is a toxic. That is toxic shame. Okay.
3: In the context of your book, we're talking about toxic shame, I assume. Yes,
1: mostly. In the context of the book. So toxic shame, uh, bullying, for example, is a form of toxic shame, and I refer to it specifically as weaponized shame because it's when one child, or adult for that matter, one child uses shame to attack uh, another child. And I think the reason they do this, I'm pretty sure about this, is because they themselves have have been shamed a lot by a parent or uh, or some peer you know a brother or sister when they were little and they are dealing with the feeling they are displacing it onto another child through bullying them so you bully a child and you feel better for a few minutes so it's a way of managing your shame and we see this a lot with adults I would guess, and then also people feel good from identifying with the bully sometimes, which is why it's so difficult in this country, anyway, to prevent bullying, and why some of the bullying programs that are successful in Sc- the anti-bullying programs that are successful in Scandinavia don't really work very well here, because we have such an aggressive and competitive society where people are shamed so much. In the book, I associate this also with acts of apparently meaningless violence, such as school rampage shootings. And, in fact, I wrote another book on that called Ceremonial Violence that, in fact, led me to this investigation of shame that I go through in this book. And there is a chapter in Beyond Bullying on um, how shame turns to violence, and this leads to school shootings and uh, domestic uh, You know, I'd like to talk
3: about that chapter because obviously that's unfortunately very current, and that's what people, our audiences, are talking about. How does this happen? Um, You know, so in that chapter, what are you discussing in terms of how all of this relates, you know, shame and and the way we uh, are as a culture leads to these horrific acts of violence, which seem to be... You know every day, not every day, but uh constant
1: yeah, I, actually, I was just looking at this, and the number of acts of of random, seemingly random mayhem random shooting involving guns uh, in two thousand and fifteen the The number of people injured and killed is just about the same number of days in the year, although they weren 't all killed on the same day or shot on the same day. But the Washington Post did a, a survey on this, and they found that I think there were three hundred and seventy shootings and or maybe three hundred and forty five it was It was around the number of days in the year, so that's pretty shocking, although compared with the number of people who die of cancer it's not It's not so shocking, but it's shocking that they're meaningless deaths that people are shooting other people at random. so the first thing we have to understand is that When you're shamed, you respond with anger, almost always, unless it's a very kind of positive shaming, like we talked about with the little kid at the table. Or, for example, um, if you're drunk driving and a cop comes and puts you in prison for the night, that's a really, it's it's very shaming, but it's also very healthy because it usually is enough shame to stop you from driving and drinking at the same time. So with these school shooters, if you look at the the ones where we have a lot of details about their lives, we see that in their childhood and in their infancy, even they were really bullied a lot by uh, by their families, or they had very uh, they grew up in, with a lot of shame uh, and serious shaming events like incest, um, in a, a mental illness in the family. Uh, extreme poverty substance abuse and uh, so they they were in a lot of shameful experiences and they did not have a lot of resources for managing the shame they didn't have a therapist they didn't have a good therapist like we would be they didn't have um, a good sense of humor which is another way of managing these things Um, they were not particularly articulate so they couldn't describe them to people. So they were pretty much stuck with this shame. So I call that distal shame because it's shame in the distance. It's shame in their childhood. And then later in life, when they were in high school, they experienced what I call proximal shame, which is the shame of being bullied in school and often being bullied by teachers and students, although you don't hear so much about that, Um, and having this enormous rage shame related rage, um, and also being in a culture where people take out their rage with guns and violence and physical violence. So there, are, and you know, there are some other there are some other factors too. But like James Gilligan says, it's not um, it's it's a necessary factor, but not a sufficient factor. And I think but it's probably I, also
3: in your description. Uh, Jonathan, it seems to me that then there is some ability to predict these acts of violence if if we are, as you say, if you are teachers or counselors, perhaps not parents, because they're part of the problem, uh, I, as you're describing it, but because of these children who have been so shamed all along the way, that these acts of violence or terrorism are predictable?
1: No, you could, you could never predict one of these. You could never and... predict, okay. That's what kind of makes this an idle conversation, this particular part of it, but, but a very fascinating one and one that can help us understand and make this a better culture. But the interventions that we would need to use have to be on a slightly higher level than individual. The reason why you could never predict this is because, first of all, human beings are incredibly complicated, and there are so many variables. Secondly, because teenagers are bizarre. And the reason they seem bizarre to be older folk is because they're trying on identities. You know, as Erickson says, that this is the period where we, where we have to choose between uh, identity and identity diffusion. Um, and choosing an identity is a very bizarre thing. So you have kids who actually become criminals while they're adolescents and then never do anything criminal again when they're adults. You have kids who try, you know, to be actors and that's the first thing I think of after criminal. Isn't that funny? Um, who try, you know, try to be all different, take all different roles to see what they like and what they want to do, and this can get pretty bizarre. So it's it's really impossible, even even under the best of circumstances, this process, which we call clinical prediction, has a very low um, rate of success. So, and there's a lot of good research on this. It shows that when people try to predict. When um, when a psychiatric patient in a hospital will either try to harm himself or harm another, the success rate is below half. So it's it's worse than random.
3: So what can we do? Is there anything that we can? We as a society, because you said yes. Bit, well, yeah, okay. what we
1: have to do is we have to kind of re-engineer um, what it means to be American, and not in any bad way. I mean, we can still all have guns. We just have to lock them up. Um, but on a on a more basic level, what we have to do is we have to have uh, a kind of a more civil society. And this isn't isn't as impossible as it sounds because everybody has to go through everybody in America has to go through a, a, the public school system or the private school system. So if we institute this kind of behavior in our schools, we will within a generation have a have people who won't be behaving like this and the real importance of doing this is that every it seems that every day practically the bar against success and by success I mean being able to support a family and have a regular job and you know feed your family the the resistance the uh, obstacle to this gets a little bit higher so we have People are struggling now to find work. You know, we used to be in a country where you could work on an assembly line and make a good living in Detroit. Um, but this no longer happens. You know, when we had, a, when we had an industrial and manufacturing uh, society, but now we have this strange information and communication-based culture services. Um, and to enter into the... Into the information-based culture, you have to be, you know, you have to have really good in kind of intelligence, a kind of engineering intelligence that is not common. And uh, all the requirements in school are getting more and more difficult. Uh, not everybody is going to be able to be a computer programmer. Uh, so the, uh, so there's going to be more and more shame and... Uh, We've got to institute a different kind of culture in the schools. And the best thing that I've seen, and I've looked through a lot of this stuff because I don't like to just talk about the problems. You know, I like to occasionally talk about a solution. The best thing I've come across is uh, what's called restorative practices. And this is an intervention that's based around shame. And basically what it does is it takes a shaming event like bullying, for example, and it tries to restore the order of, the, of life after the bullying event. So, uh, if, you know, so if somebody comes in and rips up your school books, for example, uh, what might restore things would be them getting you new school books. But that would not be sufficient. And maybe if they apologized also for doing it, and maybe that would be enough. It's really the person who is shamed the person who is victimized, has to figure out what the other person, what the aggressor has to do to make things right again. So sometimes it may involve a a financial penalty or even incarceration, but mostly it involves uh, confronting the shame and making things right again.
3: When you're talking about restorative practices, and actually the example you just gave is face-to-face, what happens in terms of, well, let's take, Specific examples: um, some horrific things that have happened as a result of uh, gay teens uh, being bullied on the net, online, uh, which is different than uh, the example that you gave. Let's say in the classroom. Um, how do we prevent that, or how do this concept of restorative practices come play into being able to, if you've been bullied online?
1: Well, cyberbullying is is one of the most difficult things to confront, and because first of all, it's what's called relational bullying, which means that instead of having somebody punch you, um, it's somebody spreading rumors about you. And the other thing is that it can remain anonymous. Um, it can also involve someone pretending to be you and behaving like an idiot. Um, so it's really uh, it's very very difficult to counter. People I've talked to about this um, suggest that, that in the near future there will be software solutions. There will be a kind of artificial intelligence that will be able to pick these things up. In the meantime, in some cases, the, um, the Internet provider has been able afterwards to kind of track down... Who, who said what, but in these situations, often these follow the suicide of the child, and not often but occasionally uh, and we've we've read about some of these kids who have been driven to suicide after being cyberbullying after being cyberbullying the the one another problem that kids have that we don't have as adults is that when they get into a uh, cyberbullying situation, uh, when it, like if it happened to us as an adult, we could just turn off the computer or walk away from it. But there's something about being a teenager and wanting to the, the need to be in a social group and to defend yourself that's so powerful that they can't extract themselves from these things. So you see, if you follow these cases closely, um, like uh, – Phoebe Prince was one of the cases and then there's uh, there was another on the internet that was that was very fascinating but if you follow them you see that really the problem is that the person can't extricate themselves uh, from it I mean that's one of the problems as, as teenagers you know teenagers do a lot of um, thing a lot of risky risky behaviors because their brains aren't completely mature so what do you do about it um, I don't, I don't know what you do about it. Uh, that's something I haven't found a solution for. I mean, you can just, you know, you can tell people not to do it. You can train people to, meet, to be more empathic and to be more civil. Generally, in schools that, where they've implemented restorative practices, and if you look at the website of the IIRP, the International Institute for Restorative Practices, they have some research online it's, that's very impressive, but in schools where they do this as part of the culture of the school, um, the general rate of bullying is much lower so it's not something you can stamp out, just like you can't get rid of all the mean people, but it's something that you can you can improve on a lot.
3: Well, you have to be aware of it, and uh, you have to have the information like you're giving us today, for instance are there are there places in the country or school systems in the country that do better than others in terms of, we're talking about restorative practices or being aware of, of uh, when bullying goes on, either in the classroom or cyberbullying, um, you know, any ones that we can look to as perhaps examples?
1: Uh, well, there are a bunch of schools in Pennsylvania where they've implemented these things, and uh, there's a, there are schools in Oakland. Um, if you look on, you know, if you go into Google and you look at restorative practices, Oakland, um, you get a uh, there's a very nice video of doing it in an Oakland high school where that was uh, that had a lot of um, you know what's, what what do we call fights? What's a nice word for fights? I don't know. The students were having <laughs> a lot of disagreements. No. <laughs> <laughs> the students were having a lot of issues with each other.
3: Yeah, brawls um, is not a nice and, word for fights. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but uh, there you know there are school systems that are gradually adopting it and I think probably we'll see this in the most uh progressive um states is my guess
3: California, uh, Pennsylvania.
1: Cal- yeah. New York, Connecticut, New York. Yeah, although New York has this other extraordinary problem with uh with overpopulation. So you know in in the New York City, you have the largest school system in the world with over a million students, and there's just the resources that are necessary are just not there, so you know they really struggle with it, and they do their best, but it's just so many so many students and uh, so many teachers and so many buildings, you know so i I think that's going to take some other I, I don't know what they're going to do with that. You know they've tried so many things like dividing you know they have these huge old schools from the 1930s that are built on the fact on the factory model um, you know where kids sit quietly at their desks and they have like three four thousand students and, and what they've done is and in many of these is to divide them into academies so there's a, di- a separate school on each floor um, and they have tried lots of and charter schools also are a solution to this but the, still, just the fact of so many students in such a small space is is problematic. What What's to been the response? That. We
3: only have a couple minutes left. Are you you're a professor at Yeshiva University's? Um, yes. The response of your students to your book. Oh, well,
1: I don't want to boast.
3: <laughs> well, boast. This is the opportunity. Go ahead, do <laughs> I don't it. I want to
1: boast, but um, they seem absolutely delighted to have it's not you know they don't just read the book they have there's a course I teach a uh, an elective um, on shame and violence uh, and the students really love it and it's it's usually subscribed to the maximum number of students uh, and I the students you know I teach some other courses too that they don't that they don't love so much so it's not entirely my charisma uh, I think it's the subject matter but to have someone sit down and tell you this is why people have low self esteem, you know, is because they have a history of this. And if you go into the subject in depth, um, you can really understand um, a lot about behavior that isn't explained and in a kind of a simple way um, that isn't well explained by other theories. So just to take one example, there are in our the core of ourselves, in our identity, we have different. Um, you know, our identity is composed of different factors of our lives, like our uh, gender, and uh, and our profession, and our family heritage. And if you look at um, bullying and shaming that attacks these factors, as opposed to more, um, more. Uh, superficial things, you know, like the cl- what kind of clothes are you wearing and things like that. You see that the, it's a much more intense kind of shaming. And,
3: yeah. and you bullying, know, uh, that's a, actually yes. perhaps what we have to end on because we have 30 mm-hmm. seconds left be- and I do want to, because I want to make sure that people or the audience knows beyond bullying, breaking the cycle of shame, bullying and violence, Jonathan Fast, they can buy the book online. Amazon.
1: Amazon Amazon is great. Buy it online
3: at Amazon uh, so that you can continue this conversation. Um, It's been great having you on the show today. Um, Well, it was really fun getting to talk about this. We really appreciate it. Social worker. Yeah, all the information will have you on Hi. again. Thanks so much. Uh, again, Jonathan Fast, Beyond Bullying, Breaking the Cycle of Shame, Bullying and Violence. Uh, you can buy it at Amazon. Um, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday.
2: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.